Welcome to Skim This. Hurricane Ian touched down in Southwest Florida yesterday, damaging homes, flooding cities, and leaving millions without power. We've got the latest on the storm, along with the other major headlines from the week, from the chaotic energy of the global economy to a big shift in the war in Ukraine. Also on the show, we've been hearing about this kinda creepy thing lately, workplace surveillance. So we asked an expert, are we being watched at work? I think a lot of folks feel like, oh, it's not, it's not happening to me. But I wouldn't be so sure because it's really hard to tell. And finally, if the colder weather is starting to impact your mood, we've got some tips on how your routine can help you combat the winter blues. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... As we come on the air tonight, the state of Florida is being pummeled by Hurricane Ian. After wreaking havoc in Cuba earlier this week, Hurricane Ian made landfall last night in southwestern Florida. And it's the second big Atlantic hurricane to hit in the last two weeks. The storm was just shy of a Category 5 hurricane, which is the most severe of them all. It's one of the most powerful hurricanes to ever hit the state, and is tied for fifth place on the list of strongest hurricanes in U.S. history. Winds hit 150 miles per hour along Florida's west coast. St. Petersburg, Tampa, and Fort Myers all got hit hard. And in some areas, the storm surge was up to 18 feet high. Homes were destroyed, while cars floated in the streets, and more than 2 million homes and businesses lost power. Some customers have seen their power restored, but in many areas, people are still without electricity. So far, at least one person has died in Florida, while two others died in Cuba, but death tolls are expected to go way up. And officials have asked residents to stay inside as the flooding subsides, because first responders are overwhelmed with rescue calls. Now, all eyes are on Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia as Ian starts making its way north as a tropical storm. And the governors of those states have already declared states of emergency. The damage from Ian will be felt for weeks to come. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis warned that electricity issues and other dangerous conditions will outlast the storm itself. And experts estimate cleanup could cost $40 billion. Meanwhile, Team Biden offered full governmental support as Florida starts to rebuild. For our next headline, we're focusing on what exactly is going on with the global economy. Battling inflation, currencies, market fiasco, major financial turmoil, fears of a recession, currencies around the world really falling in value. We've been talking about the confusing vibes of the U.S. economy for a while. We've got high inflation, a high cost of borrowing money, a strong dollar, and low unemployment. Basically, it's hard to read the tea leaves. And as it turns out, we're not the only country dealing with some of these problems. Last week, as the U.S. Federal Reserve hiked interest rates for a fifth time this year, 
Nine other central banks, like the Swiss National Bank and the Central Bank of the Republic of China in Taiwan, joined in on the party. And when 10 major nations' financial institutions all make borrowing more expensive, that could create a major shift in how people do business and spend money around the world. In fact, this simultaneous rate hike was so dramatic and unprecedented that the World Bank warned this could have a disastrous effect on the global economy. And over the past few days, rates have gone up as currency values have gone down. Let's focus on the British pound, which was in the headlines this week for all the wrong reasons. The pound hit a historic low on Monday, and its value dropped to its lowest against the US dollar since 1985. The reason why? Basically, the UK's finance minister introduced a new economic plan, spearheaded by Prime Minister Liz Truss, that included costly tax cuts and a predicted increase in government borrowing and spending, while inflation in the UK is running rampant. Some investors thought that plan would create more economic turmoil in Britain, so the pound's value went down. And it's not just the pound that's on life support. This week, the Chinese yuan hit its lowest value since 2008, and the Japanese yen also sank to a 24-year low. To give you some context here, China's economy is the second largest in the world, and Japan is one of the United States' deepest economic partnerships. So when a number of major economies' currencies drop lower than M&M's pants in 2002, it signals we've got a problem. And the final thing that's making people whisper global recession is stock performances around the world. And it's safe to say investors are spooked. Here in the US, one of the major stock indexes, the S&P 500, sank deeper into a bear market as it fell to a two-year low on Tuesday. And another index, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, fell into one for the first time. And that's just here at home. The Asian and European markets were also in turmoil this week. So what does this all mean? The TLDR is that things aren't looking great across the board. Economies around the world are dealing with high interest rates, inflation, and rocky stock markets, making experts concerned that we're heading towards a global recession. Though it's too soon to actually call it one. Still, let's be real. The idea of a global recession is scary. So we're here to try to help. Check out our special mini-series launching on Monday, where we're going to get into how to protect your finances and your mental health in this economy. Whatever this economy means, anyway. For our next headline, let's go to Washington, D.C. If you look at your child and you can't feed your child, what the hell else matters? This week, President Biden hosted a hunger summit at the White House, and laid out his plan to end hunger and reduce diet-related illnesses in the U.S. by the year 2030. So what's on his to-do list? Team Biden proposed a number of policies, like providing more kids with free school meals, expanding the food stamps program, and creating better transportation options for the millions of Americans who don't live close to grocery stores. The plan also proposes putting nutrition labels on the front of food packages instead of the back, and enhancing food security research by funding philanthropy efforts and startups. 
We should also note, a big chunk of the $8 billion price tag will be covered by private companies. Google, Tyson Foods, and DoorDash are just some of the companies contributing. And even though Nixon was the last president to hold a summit like this, hunger and health issues in the U.S. are increasingly more common. In 2021, almost 34 million Americans lived in food-insecure households. That's about 1 in 10 Americans. And we know that poor nutrition can lead to chronic illnesses like diabetes or heart disease, and that people of color and those living in rural areas struggle with hunger at disproportionate rates. But even though hunger is a growing problem in this country, some of Team Biden's goals, like expanding food stamps, will still require congressional approval in a very divided Congress. For our final headline, we're talking about a medical breakthrough you might have missed in Alzheimer's research. On Tuesday, two pharma companies, ASI and Biogen, said their drug, lecanemab, significantly slowed cognition and functional decline for patients with mild Alzheimer's. The trial involved nearly 1,800 people and found that the antibody drug slowed the disease's progression by 27% after 18 months. Some participants did experience side effects like brain swelling and bleeding, but researchers are still taking the results as a big win, especially since the CDC estimates that over 5 million people in the U.S. have Alzheimer's disease. The positive results also serve as a contrast to the pharma duo's other Alzheimer's drug, Adjahelm. There was little evidence that that controversial drug actually slowed Alzheimer's from progressing, but the FDA approved it anyway, though many Medicare plans wouldn't cover it. Now, researchers are feeling pretty good about their findings this time around. And some say the results could even put lecanemab on the fast track for FDA approval by January. You've probably been seeing a lot of headlines about Russia this week. A sense of crisis brewing for the Kremlin. Resistance is growing inside Russia against the war in Ukraine. Forced ballots cast at gunpoint. Nord Stream pipelines, possible sabotage. Nuclear blackmail. Russia's President Vladimir Putin is scrambling after Ukraine made major gains in the war this month. And over the past few days, he took matters into his own hands and, as the kids say, made some choices. We're going to skim the three strategic pivots Putin seems to have made and how they might impact the outcome of the war in a little over 60 seconds. Before we get into how Russia's war strategy has changed, let's check in on how the war is going. Reminder, Ukraine scored a touchdown this month as the country reclaimed more than 2,000 miles of territory. After taking the L, Russian President Vladimir Putin had to re-strategize on how to keep Russia in the game, because he did start this whole war to begin with. Over the past week, Putin seems to have made three major changes to his strategy, which, according to experts, signals a major escalation in the war. Let's start with the first big change, announcing a military draft. Last week, Putin said, surprise, at least 300,000 reservists, aka people mostly with military experience, now have to help fight in Ukraine. 
And this announcement had people shook because Russia hasn't implemented a draft like this since World War II. Protesters hit the streets in cities throughout Russia, and things turned violent after Russian military officers fired into crowds and a man who was being drafted shot a drafting officer. So far, over 700 protesters have been detained. The draft has also caused Russian men to try to GTFO and fast. Satellite images show miles of cars at the Russian border, while flights leaving the country are sold out. But while Putin's people are mad at him, he is getting more manpower out on the field. And that could spell bad news for Ukraine. So that's pivot number one. Change number two, formally annexing four Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine, which Putin is set to do on Friday. Last week, Ukrainians in those four areas, which make up about one-fifth of the country, allegedly voted yes in favor of joining Russia. But those polls are technically considered illegal under international law. Not to mention, Russian authorities allegedly held people at gunpoint and coerced them into voting. But while the West isn't recognizing the election results, Putin is. And this could impact the war going forward. Because in Putin's mind, if Ukraine attempts to reclaim the annexed lands, well, that would be considered a direct attack on Mother Russia itself. Which would give him a reason to pummel Ukraine with anything from artillery to nuclear weapons. And now that brings us to the third major thing that's happened, an alleged attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. Quick skim here, Nord Stream sends Russian natural gas to Europe. And on Tuesday, officials investigated explosions under the Baltic Sea and found that the lines experienced unprecedented damage and leaked into the ocean, likely from sabotage. Ukraine and other Western countries quickly pointed fingers at Russia, but Russia hasn't claimed responsibility for the damage, so we can't actually say that this was Putin. But the timing definitely had people raising their eyebrows and made Europeans nervous about further economic instability on the continent. Whether all these recent events actually influence the outcome of the war is TBD, but it's safe to say Putin has raised the stakes and the world is on high alert. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Recently, you might have heard about this creepy thing your boss and your boss's boss and your boss's boss's boss might be doing at work. It's something called workplace surveillance. And while this sounds like something fit for the CIA, it's actually pretty low-tech and common. In fact, one report found that since the pandemic started, one in three medium to large U.S. companies has adopted some kind of worker surveillance system. These softwares can range from monitoring how many times you're clicking your mouse to how many minutes or hours you spent on certain websites or applications. If this all sounds pretty big brotherish and annoying, you're right. But it turns out this employee monitoring can actually backfire on employers big time. We had to learn more, so we called up an expert. 
My name is Hilke Schellman. I'm a reporter covering artificial intelligence and the future of work. I'm writing a book on the subject. I'm also a journalism professor at NYU. Hilke, thank you for joining us. There have been a ton of headlines recently about workplace surveillance. And I think everyone's initial read is like, this is kind of creepy. But what people are missing is that this is kind of common. Can you just walk us through how common this actually is and what kinds of jobs are being monitored? It's probably more common than you think it is. So I think a lot of folks feel like, oh, it's not, it's not happening to me. But I wouldn't be so sure because it's really hard to tell. During the pandemic, you know, a lot of folks started working remote. So a lot of managers and employers got a little nervous. What are those people doing at home? Like, how can we make sure they're working hard? What we've seen is that surveillance of computers has gone up, of remote systems. We can check all the keyboard tappings. There's companies that take screenshots of their employees every day and sort of understand how are they feeling today? Do we need to help them in any way? So companies feel there's multiple ways that the surveillance is helping them. One is like understanding, is my employee working, right? Is there a butt in the seat? Are they moving the mouse? Are they quote unquote working? Are they productive? They also use surveillance measurements to understand, is somebody at flight risk? Are they likely to leave in the next year? Do I need to, you know, make them a better offer? And maybe some folks have even encountered it when you start a new job. Maybe the company tells you just a disclaimer or opt-in consent saying, hey, just so you know, we monitor everything that's on your Google Drive, on your emails, just initial here. And probably 100% of people have initial there without understanding that anything that happens on a work computer belongs in the United States to the company. You know, that's so interesting because when I was reading about this trend, my first thought was, is this legal? And it sounds like it is. Yes. When you look at Europe, they're very clearly defined privacy and digital rights laws. We don't really have them on the federal level in the United States. Most of the things that you do on a work computer is fair game for the company to monitor. And a lot of these programs are very sophisticated, so you wouldn't even know that it's running in the background, right? You wouldn't necessarily see the green light of the camera or something like that. And there really isn't anything illegal about it in the United States. If you're working on a company-issued computer, it really is all fair game. I think this also begs the question of, are we even monitoring the right stuff? Like, is monitoring how many times I'm clicking on my computer even a reliable indicator of productivity? And I'm curious what you think about that. That's the big question, right? Does this actually measure any kind of form of productivity? It's incredibly hard to define what makes someone productive. And if you're moving your mouse in 99% of the cases are no indication of being productive. So what this means is we have all of these signals now that we can track. Does that tell me that you're productive? Probably not. But this is like an old school way, right? We had offices so managers could see, oh, my employee is sitting with a butt in the chair. They must be productive. That was sort of the shorthand. And now we're using similar surveillance technology. And we still think if we just see activity on a computer, they must be productive. Well, that's really not true. And we all know that, right? I've heard some of these stories kind of anecdotally, but have you heard of any employees trying to like outsmart the surveillance systems? Yes, there's definitely a couple of things that you can use to outsmart the system. So that always happens. So one thing that I've seen over and over again is one of the things that companies use is a pretty easy, it's like recording idle tracking. So it's recording if you're idle on your computer. 
if you stop using your mouse or you stop typing, after a certain amount of time, it will sort of flag you as idle. So what people have done is they have connected any device that like moves a little bit or even some sex toys to their mice. So they keep moving. So they're not idle anymore. That's definitely an inventive solution. I think a lot of people are probably listening to this and wondering just how do I know if I'm being tracked? And are there ways you can figure it out? I would assume that you are being tracked. I would try not to do my personal emails on my work computer. Just assume this work computer is the property of my company. They can do anything with this. So I'm just going to use my own personal computer at home if I need to do emails. The tools are way more sophisticated. Often it's like, I can record a Zoom and then later run the analytics over it. So it doesn't have to be while it's happening so that you have any clue that it's happening. And besides the fact that some people just don't know that they're being watched, I wonder how these kinds of surveillance systems impact things like trust in the workplace. How is this changing the dynamic between workers and the people who employ them if they feel like or suspect or know that they're being watched? So I think when employees find out that they're being tracked, and sometimes it's obvious, right? Some companies make it very obvious that you have to be tracked every 15 minutes. And then employees obviously know. And the ones that I've spoken to, they feel very anxious. They feel very distressed that they're always being watched. And some of them I talked to, they actually left their jobs and they wanted to get to a job that didn't have any surveillance. A whole weight had been lifted off their shoulders. They're like, okay, I'm not being surveyed. Like my manager trusts me. I feel like I'm being a full human at this job because I'm not being watched every second. Like I'm being trusted that I can do my work. And I think that's probably what every company should think about. If you want to use this, you should probably ask your employees if they're okay with it, that you're using it. But also you really need to think about, will this undermine trust and the goodwill of my employees to this company? So it sounds like some of these tools can actually just be counterproductive and backfire on managers. I actually agree. I think that these tools may backfire in a lot of companies because Employees do feel like they're not being trusted. This is not a good workplace to work for. So they leave. And we all know that we have a talent shortage. So a lot of companies complain about that. A lot of companies might want to think about, can I do something that employees will trust me and like to be at this company? And I think surveying employees undermines that very intention. And my last question for you is just, I've seen the term people, data, revolution thrown around a lot. And I'm just curious, is this the future of work? And what would you say to someone listening who's hesitant or kind of scared about that future? So we are at the very beginning of the future of work and we're seeing that human behavior, everyone tries to measure and put into signals that then can be analyzed. So I think there will be more of it. I think I'm very optimistic about it that I feel like in a few years, we'll actually find out that a lot of the signal analyzing and processing actually means nothing. So I hope there will be a great rethinking of this because there is a lot of tension around this, right? Like employers want you to bring your whole self to work. They want to make sure that you're feeling good. But at the same time, there's lots of employers that are now starting to survey their employees. And that feels like that's a really big tension. Wait, wait do you trust me or do you not trust me? But I also understand that CEOs and employers are seeing these new shiny objects. They're like, I want to know what my employees are thinking. 
But would you be happy if all your emails would be tracked? If all your Slack messages are checked for the sentiment? No, you don't. Hilka, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. The fall equinox was exactly one week ago, so it's officially autumn. And fall weather brings a lot of good things. Foliage, apple cider donuts, Halloween candy. But as the days get shorter, sometimes it's hard to battle those winter blues. You've likely heard of something called seasonal affective disorder, also known as seasonal depression. And it turns out that's pretty common. SAD affects an estimated 10 million Americans, and women are four times more likely to be diagnosed with it than men. To learn more about SAD, how to know if you have it, and what you can do, we called up an expert. I'm Kelly Rowan, PhD, Professor of Psychological Science, University of Vermont. Let's start with that first question. How do you know if you have seasonal depression? Rowan told us, That could depend on where you live. It seems to increase with latitude. It looks very prevalent from 1% in Florida to 9% in Alaska. Like most mental health problems, seasonal affective disorders on a continuum too. At the extreme are people that have depression in the wintertime, and that's what we would think of a seasonal affective disorder. And then at the other extreme, are people who feel the same year-round, no matter what season it is. So how do we know if it's actually SAD, or if we're just lowercase SAD? If you're someone who experiences some mild seasonal changes and they don't really impair your ability to function in important roles, like at work or at school or in relationships, then it's probably not an issue for you. But if they are getting in the way of your ability to function and or causing a lot of distress, then that's the time to definitely seek some professional help. Rowan told us some signs of SAD are if your appetite changes, things you usually love doing just aren't sparking joy, or if your sleep schedule has shifted, all since the seasons changed. As Rowan mentioned, it's important to seek professional help if your seasonal depression is interfering with your life. But she also told us, if you've got a milder form, like the winter blues, there are plenty of things you can try to brighten up even the darkest fall and winter days. For people that really have mild symptoms, there are some things that might benefit people like that, including taking a walk outside first thing in the morning, 30 minutes in the morning after sunrise. You're getting the light to your retina. You might be resetting your sluggish biological clock and you're moving your body. You're getting physical activity and there's antidepressant effects of physical activity and exercise. So it's the two birds, one stone kind of thing. It's also important to know what your triggers are. For some people, it's the end of daylight savings time. For other people, it's certain calendar dates or even holidays. Have a plan in place for staying in your routines instead of giving into that urge to go straight home that first Monday we get out of work after the time change and it's suddenly dark. Your body might be telling you, go get under a blanket, sit on the couch, go into hibernation mode. 
do something else. Do whatever it was that you did the Friday before. If it's go to the gym, keep doing that. If it's seeing people, if it's staying active in clubs and activities, it's really important to stay into our routines of natural antidepressants, the things that we do that naturally make us feel good, whatever those are, to keep active in those things in the wintertime. And we couldn't talk about SAD without talking about happy lamps. But Rowan told us, what sounds like a great invention might not actually be so helpful in fighting seasonal mood changes. Light therapy is timed daily exposure to artificial light. And light boxes are not regulated by the FDA. They're not approved by the FDA. It's very much a cottage industry. So I strongly recommend that people who are interested in light therapy do so under the guidance of a qualified mental health provider. Rowan warned that DIY light therapy can cause similar side effects to taking the wrong medications. Do it for too long or at the wrong time, and you could actually make yourself feel worse. And as we head into winter, Rowan's final piece of advice is to speak up about what you're experiencing. Most people sadly suffer in silence a long time before they they seek treatment, sometimes decades even. There's no need to suffer in silence. We have effective treatments, light therapy, antidepressant medication, and also a form of talk therapy called cognitive behavioral therapies. There's no need to be on this roller coaster of depression every year when we've got these treatments that can help. And quickly, before we go, if the colder weather is getting you down, we want to end with this clip of Lizzo. It's crystal. It's like playing out of a, a wine glass, bitch. She played a flute that belonged to James Madison. Yes, former U.S. President James Madison, on stage in Washington, D.C. Tuesday night. The flute is 200 years old, made of crystal, and lives in the Library of Congress. us, a Lizzo and Library of Congress collab is better than a happy lamp any day of the week. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Keith. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out The Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.